Have you ever wondered why churches in their nurseries oftentimes decorate with Noah's Ark? Or why sometimes you'll see it at preschools or maybe even you've decorated with Noah's Ark before. I remember when Rachel and Allie were little, somebody gave them a pair of Noah's Ark bookends, which were really, really cute. And I guess it's because of the fun animals. I mean, giraffes on a boat, that's just a really good time. But some of the things that you never see in the decorating is like people who didn't make it onto the ark drowning or the animals that didn't make it. I mean, we don't decorate our baby's rooms with scenes of a tornado with happy cows about to be sucked up into the funnel. So what is it about Noah's Ark? And why is it that on the one hand, it seems to be this happy, cheery story, but it really is very, very dark. If you think of the story, or if you read it in its entirely, it's a hard story, but it's also a really important one. So we're gonna talk about Noah's Ark and the flood today. So first of all, let's tackle the elephant in the room. A universal flood, a really, really big boat. I mean, just for the heck of it, I looked the other day, and there has not been a wooden ship ever built that big with the exception of Noah's Ark. Animals just showing up on their own, two by two. I mean, the whole story sounds made up. The whole story sounds pretty fanciful. Can it be believed? So let's start with that. There's a couple of different ways that you can look at the text of Noah's Ark, or really, remember I said that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are kind of a very different literary genre. So there's a couple of ways that we can look at them, and some of the options are not great. Like blind trust, for instance. Now, I'm all for faith. I'm all for stepping out in faith. I'm all for believing that I don't know everything and some things I have to trust God on. But the Bible never requires us to turn our brains off. The Bible never requires us to stop thinking about stuff. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to doubt. The stories in the Bible and the, Jesus, the whole Jesus thing stand up to questioning. And kind of a corollary of this that I think we, is really important for us to remember is that science is not the enemy of faith. All truth is God's truth. So I'm not sure if blind trust is just the right way to go. Another unhealthy way of reading the text is just dismissing it. It can't be true. And then if you take that to its logical conclusion, the stories can't be true, therefore the Bible can't be true. And I think this might be one of the most dangerous ways to look at it at all, and it's of all. And that's also why our view of the Bible is so important. I think we have to be careful about how we look at the Bible. There are some things that I'm not sure we need to major on, and how we look at this story is one of them. And I also think that we need to understand that our view of the Bible will never be as important as whether or not we're actually living out what the Bible clearly teaches. So I don't think that either of those are really good options for looking at a text like Noah's Ark. So let's look at how I think we can unpack this that holds a high view of scripture of God's word, 
but also helps to make sense of some of the dif difficulties in the text. So the first 11 chapters are different. They use a different sort of language. We're, we're more used to like apocalyptic literature, like Revelation, so the book of Daniel, or some parts of Thessalonians, and we know that it's a bit fanciful. We know that it uses a bit of hyperbole to make its point. And, but we're not so used to looking at the book of Genesis as maybe using some figurative and poetic language. So I think we need to consider looking at it that way. So Genesis, these stories, they're the word of God, but they're not a science textbook and they're not a geography textbook either. The, the purpose of these stories, the purpose of Genesis is to tell us how things got to be the way they are, how the world was created, how the fall happened, how humanity developed, and most importantly, they're about communicating about how God is at work in us and in the world. So for much of the Old Testament, and particularly for the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the significance of the events is not the event themselves, it's in their interpretation. It's not so much in what happened or how it happened as it is in why did it happen. The importance of these stories is in the question, what was God doing? Uh, let, me, let me give you an example of this. Uh, years ago, before I came to Harbor Covenant Church, um, I was uh, up for a position executive pastor at a large covenant church. And uh, I went and I interviewed, talked to the senior pastor, things were doing really well, interviewed with the search committee. And by the time I drove home from the search committee, they had already called to tell me that I didn't get the job. Now, that was kind of devastating. And I took it really hard because I thought it would be a really good place for me to serve. Fast forward about six months and the church had absolutely fallen apart. Um, for any number of reasons, and the superintendent called me and said, you were spared from going there. So I didn't get the job. That's the historical thing that happened. But the most important about that instance is God spared me from something. God was at work. And that's really what the point of the story of me not getting the job at that church is. So, and you probably have examples in your life that are like that. The biggest thing that you took away from them was how God was at work, how God was faithful, how God was present. And that was really more important than exactly what happened on that particular day. And that's sort of the way that it is. The things in the first 11 chapters, the, the story of the fall is rooted in an actual event, but the point is in the theological significance of the event. So the first 11 chapters, historical stuff happened, but it's really about the point that's being made. And if we go back to where we were last week and then connect some of the dots, the story is building. It, the creation has happened, Adam and Eve sinned, what we call the fall, and then after Adam and Eve, you have Cain and Abel, 
where Cain slays his brother Abel. And then after, so you see this evil that is beginning to grow. And then in the next chapter after that, you've got some dude named Lamech who says, you know, if Cain was avenged seven times, then Lamech will be avenged 77 times. And it's just an illustration about how evil is just ballooning and going everywhere. So we're meant to understand this trajectory of growth from the sin of Adam and Eve to something that has taken over the entire world. And then chapter five, you get this really great long list of people and how long they lived. You know, 700 years, 900 years, Methuselah, almost a thousand years. And it's like, hmm, can that really be true? Did people really live 700 years, a thousand years? I don't know. But what's the Bible trying to tell us with that? I think one of the things that the Bible is trying to tell us with that, particularly right before the story of the flood, is that from a New Testament perspective, the wages of sin is death. At one time, apparently, humans lived for a very long time. But because they sinned, it cut down their lifespan and ultimately cut out their lives. It reminds us that we need help. So that's chapter 5. That's where we are. And now we get to the actual story of Noah and the ark. So chapter 6-1 says, When human beings began to increase in numbers on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. So there you have God limiting um, people's lifespan because of the sin that's going on. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children with them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Well, I think that's self-explanatory, so we'll just move on from there. Uh, okay, no, it's not. What in the world does that story mean? Well, the easy answer is nobody knows, <laughs> or at least nobody living knows because perhaps it would have been really obvious to the people that it was written to. It just isn't obvious to us. Nobody knows how to interpret who the sons of God are. Daughters of men, okay, that's a little bit easier. But we're not sure about the heroes of old, Nephilim. We don't really understand what that story is. But apparently, the people that it was written to did. It's just like, for an example, if I were to say to all of you, Okay, drive down from the church and turn right at the Grange. At least 50% of you would go, what in the world is he talking about? Drive down where? Drive down which road? Grange what? And the other 50% of you would know exactly what I was talking about. And you would know it doesn't matter which road that you take because from the church it's all downhill. And then it only becomes one place. And that you would know that the building that was the Grange hasn't been the Grange for about 10 years, but that's what everybody calls it. It's that type of thing. So at one point, this was probably super obvious. So nobody knows what it means. But let me take a stab as to why it's in there. So we've got this rapidly spreading sin. And this is kind of the last straw in the development of evil. And God says, this has to be stopped. 
he, it, it demonstrates how broken the world is and how evil things are. Stuff that should not be happening, apparently something between angelic beings and human beings, I, I don't, nobody really knows, but stuff that should not be happening is happening. And God says, enough is enough. Now, little excursus. We need to be careful about making application to current events because this is God making a judgment about what is a step too far. We're not infallible in our judgment, and we have a tendency to pick sins that we don't struggle with to condemn. And so we need to be really careful about what we say if we think that this one thing is a step too far. And we also need to remember that in Jesus, God has judged sin and has made a way for redemption. And so we're in this time where people need to hear about the love and the forgiveness and the grace of God, not just experience the judgment of religious people. So we need to be careful how we, how we apply that. But no matter how you parse it, it's a difficult story and it's there to illustrate how bad things have been. Verse five, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. And that's why I wonder why we decorate with Noah's Ark, because it's not a happy story. A couple of points to be made. Uh, it talks about the inclination of the human heart. Um, in, in Hebrew thought, the heart is not only the seat of emotions, as it is for us, but it's also where understanding comes from, where your will is seated. It's not in your brain, it's in your heart. So how you act, that all comes from your heart. And this kind of comes down to us an older song like, open the eyes of my heart. That's a very Hebrew thing. Help me understand by helping my heart understand. So everything about people, their will, volition, that was all corrupted. And in verse six says, God regretted that he made human beings. Or your translation might say, God repented or changed his mind and his heart was deeply troubled. Well, it probably deeply troubles us that it says words like God repented or God changed his mind or God regretted. This is a difficult verse and concept, but we have a tendency to take what we've been taught about God and put that back on this much earlier text. So let's just relax a little bit Let's ask what the writer might be trying to communicate to us. So the verb translated to regret or to repent can also be translated as he let himself be sorry. Now I've talked to people over the years who, I'm thinking about one couple in particular, whose kids just really struggled. If this were not a sermon, I'd tell you that their kids are pretty much rotten, but it is, so I won't use that language. And on more than one occasion, they would say to me, sometimes we're sorry we ever had them. Now, does that really mean that they would, no, it doesn't mean that. It, it, all of a sudden, it just makes it understandable. Okay, I can understand what it means to go, man, I'm sorry I did that. And then it says that God's heart hurt. That, that's what that means. And that's language I understand, because sometimes my heart hurts. I look at the situation that people are in. So all of a sudden, we've got this God who feels, 
who cares, whose heart hurts, and that's stuff we understand. Genesis really shows us a personal God that we can understand because on some levels, he's like us. Now, I know that's the wrong way to look at it. I know that we are like him, but you understand what I'm getting at. Genesis portrays this picture of a God who feels deeply, who is compassionate. And that's why, of course, in the New Testament, Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, this loving, compassionate, caring God. And then, interestingly, when the verb that's used, I will wipe, is actually wash away. So it's, the story sort of tips, it hand, tips its hand as to what is going to happen. So you've got this, uh, really sorry about this, God's heart hurts, there's going to be this judgment of sin, and then verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, I think this actually is the most remarkable part of the story. Because God has just talked about how every human heart is filled with evil. And so what you would expect is God saying, I'm going to wipe everybody away. But he doesn't. The remarkable part is that God doesn't destroy everything. He saves some. And we need to ponder this for a minute, I think. God's heart hurts. God feels sorry. But God doesn't give up on us. Now, the text doesn't tell us why he doesn't. I mean, God had just said all of them are evil. Instead, it reads, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So even in the midst of all of the evil, God still is working on salvation. Maybe God sees Noah's potential. Maybe God sees what Noah could be through his grace. And think about this for a second. All of these stories are universal, really. So maybe God sees your potential, even when you can't see it, even when it's hidden. Maybe God sees what you can become through his grace, even if you're not there yet. God doesn't give up. And I think that's a profound point that the text makes. In the midst of judgment, we've got redemption because that's who God is. We have to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of believing that God is just some angry tyrant who's waiting to pour his wrath out on you. One of the things I love most about being a covenanter is that, as far as I can tell, the signal um, contribution to uh, theology that a Swedish theologian made was this idea that God never changes. God is love. We're the ones who change. So God all of a sudden doesn't become mad at us. And I think that's really important to remember. God is the God of redemption. God is the God of grace. God is the God of love. And then something literarily interesting happens. Noah has favor in the eyes of God. And then in verse 9, it says, This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. What I want us to not mix, miss is we've got two different stories. We've got one story that is just finished. It's kind of the arc of the Adam story, A-R-C. 
And now we have the beginning of the ark, A-R-C, of the Noah story. So there is a break here. And it's quite obvious because the end of the one story is that Noah found favor, but it doesn't tell us why or how. And the beginning of the next part of the story is talking about how Noah is righteous and blameless. So there's two stories that are coming together. And what theologians believe is happening here is that this verse is actually looking forward to a couple of other verses because we know that salvation is by grace. We know that we aren't saved because we are righteous. There's none that are righteous, not one. And so it's almost this prevenient grace of God that God sees the potential of Moses to be faithful to his promises and righteousness. So it kind of looks forward. And the important part then is down in verse 22, after God gives all of these instructions about building the ark and such, and then it says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. So this is where we see that God's trust and belief in Noah was well-placed. Noah's behavior confirmed what God thought about him. God saw the potential and Noah lived into it. Then moving on, chapter 6, 11 through 21 is kind of a recap and a development of what has already been said. But at 6.14, we get to the building of the ark. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof and opening one cubit high all around. Cubit is about this far. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. So it's a really big boat and it just invites questions. Would it even be seaworthy? Would it actually just fall apart because it was just simply too massive without having iron or steel to hold it together? Can that many animals really fit in there? And very practically, can you imagine the smell? And what do you do with all? Well, there's a lot of things that need to be considered in here. And I think the danger is that we get lost in the minutia. And then all of a sudden, we have to defend how strong that wood was so that if it was lashed together properly and hit with the right bitumen, it would actually float. The danger is we get lost in the minutia, but the theological truth is what's important. And the theological truth is that God saved his chosen people. Beyond that, I don't know how it all fits together. I'm okay with a miraculous ark, but I'm also okay with, with thinking of that as being poetic because the important truth comes out that God saves his people. And then this is just kind of for free. Uh, God saves his people through the ark. All right, and I want you to think about any like traditional classic church you've ever been in. You know, maybe a Catholic cathedral or a Catholic, any Catholic church or, or whatever, where the people sit is called the nave. Nave comes from, you know, like our word navy, which actually means a ship. And so if you look up in the nave, you'll see that it generally looks like the bottom of a ship. And it's done that way on purpose because now the church is the ark of God. It's how God is saving people. That's for free. It won't be on the test. I just want you to feel like you get your money's worth. So everything on earth is going to perish because of this flood. 
And in verse 18 of chapter 6, God says this, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. This is the first mention of a covenant in the Bible. I mean, we think about the covenant that God makes with Abraham as being first, but the covenant with Noah happens first. It's the first time that God makes a solemn agreement with a human being with a promise and a sign. And the promise is essentially what all of the covenants have been, I will save you in partnership with you. So then chapter seven, we have the flood. An interesting point in verse two, it talks about in, in chapter six, it talks about all the animals will come two by two. In this verse, God tells them to bring seven pairs of clean animals and only one pair of unclean. And for ritual purposes, but again, it just points to maybe we should be interpreting this more as a story with a theological point. In verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. There's only two things that I want to mention about this. One is ancient cosmology. In the creation accounts, go back and read them, it says that when land is created, that God separated the waters. So the waters kind of go like this. And people believe that there were waters up above, and that's it's not hard to imagine rain and clouds and that kind of stuff, but their view was more like a sea that was above and waters below the, you know, the ocean, but also in the land. And so when the flood happens, it's like a hole is burst in the ceiling and water starts pouring down, but then a hole comes from the water down below and it gushes forth. So it's not just a long rain event. And that's what ancient cosmology was, was these two seas, and we were sandwiched in the middle. So this is how the flood occurs. And then I just want to point out that the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Maybe it did, but 40 always means the number of completion. So what it really is telling us is it rained enough, the floodgates were open enough to be able to accomplish what God wanted to. And then this interesting note, verse 15, pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. This is just a quick note that's easy to miss about the care of God. God provided the safety for all of the animals and ultimately it was God who took care of Noah and his family. Something to keep track of. Verse 17, for 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains and the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished, birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days days. Now, this is not the only flood story. 
Flood stories are actually found in almost every culture all the way around the world, certainly found within the people of Mesopotamia, the, the ancient uh, Middle and Near East. And you can read other, uh, the easiest one to find is the Epic of Gilgamesh, and you should because there's, there's some similarities. So what's the explanation that there are flood stories everywhere? Well, one, it could truly be a universal flood that actually covered at least the known world at the time. Uh, the problem with that is that there's no archeological or geological evidence for this happening. The Missoula floods that created much of the, the contour of Eastern Washington, there's still evidence for those things, but there's no, universal, there's no evidence for a universal flood. Doesn't mean it didn't happen, just saying there isn't any evidence. It might also be memory of a catastrophic flood that destroyed the known world. And maybe it happened so early in the human story. And remember the first 11 chapters of Genesis are lost in the mists of time. Maybe it happened so early in the human story and it was such a catastrophic flood that the memory of that flood was preserved and then carried with people as they spread out across the world. That certainly could be true too. Or it might simply be poetic and be talking about a devastating local flood. But what we need to know here is the purpose in the book of Genesis, and that's recreation. You actually get a, a reversal of creation so that you can start again. At the beginning of Genesis, the earth is formless and void and the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters. So there's chaos. And then creation or order is brought out of the chaos. And now what we have is we've got this order and God is going to re-establish um, disorder, the chaos again, so that he can bring order out of the chaos. It's kind of order, disorder, back to order again. And then chapter eight tells us the story of the waters beginning to dry up and how they figured out when it was safe to come out. And then we get to chapter nine and I wanna read at verse eight. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with them, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I've established between me and all the life on the earth. So the covenant is a covenant of rescue, that it will never be destroyed again, that God is redeeming. And it's, the covenant is established with a sign and the sign is a rainbow. And the next covenant that God had, the Abrahamic covenant, the sign of that was circumcision. And every single week for us, I hold up the cup and I say, this is the sign of the new covenant. So every covenant comes with a sign. And with the covenant that God makes with Noah and people because of that, the rainbow 
is the sign. There's some important things about that. The rainbow comes after the rain. It reminds us that the rain is going to stop. And even in the Pacific Northwest, where every February I wonder, will the rain ever stop? The answer to that is yes, because God promised that it was. Now, Hebrew is actually a little bit similar to English in this, in that rainbow is the same word as bow, as a weapon. So in essence, the rainbow represents the fact that God has ceased his warfare against sinful humanity. God has hung up his bow, and this is not going to happen anymore. So some theological truths about that. The wages of sin is death. That's what we learned from the flood. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. And that's the movement that we get and how God rescues his people out of that. There's important signs in here. In the beginning, the Holy Spirit hovers over the waters. Noah and his family are saved through the waters of the flood. The people of Israel are led out of their bondage into the promised land through the waters of the Red Sea. Jesus leads us out of bondage to sin through baptism in water. We're baptized into his death and then raised to share in his resurrection. So water is a really powerful symbol of the salvation of God. And that's really where we've gotten in the story. God is dealing with sin. He's recreating and renewing and the covenant promise will continue to grow. So these are stories primarily of origin. So what do we learn about who we are? Well, we learn that God makes promises to us and that God keeps his promise. We learn that God is faithful. We learn that God is not at war with us. We learn that God is seeking to save us. We learn that God can see good in us. We learn that God sees not what we are right now, but what we can become through his grace, that God sees potential. And we learn that God doesn't give up. So let me ask you three questions. What is the most striking element about the story of Noah and the flood to you? Number two, what is a sign that you have seen that God is present in your life? And number three, what is one thing that you can do this week to be more faithful to God? 